Well, our title for this evening's sermon is Only God Knows What is Good. Only God Knows What is Good, and our focus is Ecclesiastes chapter 7, looking at the first half of this chapter, basically from verses 1 through 14. And when we approach Ecclesiastes 7, we're really approaching the second half of the book. It's really split between the first six chapters and the last six chapters. We've covered those first six chapters already. And we are now embarking on the second half of Ecclesiastes, which takes somewhat of a different tone from what we saw in the first half. But what is important to notice is this hinge that is here in Ecclesiastes that comes right before chapter 7. In fact, we looked at these verses the last time we were in Ecclesiastes, a couple of weeks ago. We covered these verses, but we need to review, refresh them in our minds in order to set us up for what we'll look at in Ecclesiastes 7. This hinge that comes in these verses with actually verse 10 of chapter 6 being the literary center of the whole book, These verses, chapter 6, verse 10, 11, and 12, read as follows. Whatever exists has already been named, and it is not known what man is, for he cannot dispute with him who is stronger than he. For there are many words which increase futility. What then is the advantage to a man? For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his futile life? He will spend them like a shadow. For who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Now the key question, even in this section, which Solomon deals with somewhat implicitly in those verses, he answers the question implicitly, The question is this, it's found in verse 12, for who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, particularly, as he goes on to say, during the few years of his futile life? That question assumes a particular context. It assumes the context of adversity. As we know already from this book, Solomon is continually drawing our attention back to what happened in the earliest days of humanity, particularly to the fall, to Adam's disobedience, and then to the consequence of that disobedience enunciated by the curse that God placed on him, highlighted principally by the promise of Adam's death. And as a result of that disobedience, Adam and Eve were were expelled from the Garden of Eden, that place of tranquility and paradise, and now all of the existence of humanity, all the descendants of that first couple live in what we call a, a world outside the garden. It is a world that the Apostle Paul says is groaning under the curse, and that curse has been put there by God Himself. And so our lives are filled with, 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 with futility, filled with 
adversity, with trials, with tribulation. And so the key question that we must deal with in our lives, the the question that whether we think of it or not is one that burns in us and colors so much of how we look at our own circumstances, is this. What is good for me in light of life's adversities? What is good for me? That was expressed by Solomon's own question, verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime? Who knows? The question assumes that the answer is not easy to come by. It's not something that we will find within ourselves. It's not something that we just just happen to stumble upon. The answer to this question is very, very complex, and it's very difficult to answer. That's what contributes to the dilemmas of the book of Ecclesiastes. Where do we find answers to these most pressing questions? And in Ecclesiastes 7, verses 1 to 14, Solomon is going to build upon that idea. He's going to build upon that that idea of what is good for man. He's going to develop that idea by providing us with a crescendo of answers that will lead us to the place we need to get to, to relate to this question in the proper way. He's going to do that through a series of Proverbs. Actually, beginning in 7 verse 1, he's going to give us Proverbs all the way to verse 12. Proverb after proverb. And that makes sense, because if we look at Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9, Solomon says that he is this expert at searching out Proverbs and compiling them and crafting them in the right way. And that is what he has done here in chapter 7 in response to the question of 6, verse 12. And then right at the end of that particular section, he's going to move away from Proverbs to a set of instructions in verses 13 to 17 where he's leading us. He's leading us to the imperatives that we will see in those final verses for this evening. But as he gets us there, he wants us to see where we can find answers to these questions and where we will find ultimate answers. He's going he's to give us three sources from which we can learn about what is good And these are the three sources. We will learn from the dead. Number two, we will learn from the wise. And number three, we will learn from the Creator. Let's look at the first of these. And this is what is communicated to us in verses 1 to 4 of Ecclesiastes 7. We will learn from the dead. This is what he says. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. 
Now, to understand, first of all, where we can find answers to that question of what is good, particularly what is good for us in a life of adversity, in a life of pain, of suffering, in a life outside of the garden, Solomon compels his readers to go to a very unlikely source, to go to the dead, to go to death itself. You see, this is very important because the common reaction of men when faced with adversity is to escape it, is to flee from it, to ignore it, to drown it away. And, and, and Solomon gives us instruction here right off the bat that says, don't run from it, embrace it. You see, death is not only an enemy. Yes, indeed, we've seen that so far. He's taken us back over and over again to Genesis 3.19, where the Lord pronounces to Adam that from dust he was taken, and to dust he will return. He had made it very clear that disobedience would lead to death. And so we can look at death, and, and death can be seen as that greatest of adversities, and we can try to flee from it. But Solomon invites us to do the exact opposite. He calls upon us to see death as a teacher. Some have even said that we can look on death as an evangelist. That death bears important lessons for those who are seeking the good in life, the good outside of the garden. And I would even go on to say this, in light of what Solomon teaches here, and in light of what we see around us, that a significant cause of perpetual immaturity, and immaturity of faith, immaturity you could even say of masculinity, is caused by the inability of people today to consider death and to learn from its lessons. Everyone tries to avoid it. And we live in an era that is so, uh, so adverse to thinking anything about death that all we find are the consequences of those who do their best to flee from it. It's not like previous generations faced with very, very vivid realities of, of short life expectancies, of famines and wars. And you could see in those contexts a kind of maturity and masculinity that, out, that overpowers what we see in our lives today. The key lesson is this, and this is what death teaches us, as we will see, that life is a vapor. Death is unavoidable. And your end will come for you sooner than you think. And by ignoring those lessons, you live life to your own peril. But, as Solomon says here, you will learn about the good by considering the lessons that death has. Let's look at some of these lessons. First of all, the first parable in verse 1 says, A good name is better than a good ointment. A good name. The, the, the word here, name, refers to reputation, a, a good reputation. And in the ancient Near East, names have a lot more of an importance than they do for us today. Today, we just use names for identification. In those days, names described people, not just identified them. 
And not only would there be the expectation of parents when they named their children certain names, their expectation was that the child would grow up into those names. We also find in the ancient Near East the idea of even ascribing new names to people based on their character. The idea, however, is this, that as a person lives, his name is increasingly associated with his character. And Solomon, in this construction here, and notice the continual reference to that which is good, and, and the construction of that better than proverb, which has the idea of gooder than, he, he says that a good reputation is better than good ointment. Now, good ointment, good perfumes were very expensive in the ancient Near East. Sometimes they were a mark of great wealth. But in this context, the ointment, the perfume, is a reference to that which would, would be poured on the body at the time of death to cover up the stench. And what Solomon is saying, he's saying, put into your mind's eye a room, and there on a table is a dead body. And he's saying, at that moment, a good name is better than all the perfume that you could pour on that body. William Barrick puts it this way, one's name accrues value and has the potential of being more valuable at death than at birth. The good, therefore, comes at death. Solomon says in the second part of this parable, uh, this proverb, he says, and the day of one's death is better than, is gooder than, you could say, the day of one's birth. Why is that? Because birth only shows potentiality. Birth only shows the potential that a man can have, whereas death shows fulfillment. It's already over. The, the verdict has been rendered. And Solomon wants us to go first to death to learn lessons from it. And this first lesson is this. By looking at death and realizing that the character you bear when you die, the eulogy that will be spoken about you in all sincerity, and all the people as they gather for your funeral, as they will talk about in reality, that is more important than the pricey coffin, the pricey burial place, and all the trappings that can go with a fancy funeral. A better character, a good character, is better than the most fancy of funerals. And so, with that in mind, recognizing that that that, that gives us a, a point of reference from which to learn and, and to think retroactively, we must look ahead to the moment when we will be on that table, in that coffin, when we will have met our last breath and death has visited us, we will want a good name. It is better than the fancy funeral. Thinking of that helps us then work backward. How do I get there? He goes on in verse 2 to give another proverb that communicates a lesson about death and what it teaches us. He says in verse 2, it is better to go into the house of mourning 
than to go into the house of feasting, because that, speaking of death, is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. The house of mourning here is, is again, a reference to the funeral, the place for weeping and contemplating the loss of a loved one. On the other hand, the house of feasting is the party house. It's the place for indulgence. It's the place for amusement. It is the place for escape. We all know that. And certainly, Solomon is not saying that we are not to enjoy food. He's, he's talked about that in other places. But in this context, the house of feasting is the place that is the exact opposite as the funeral home. It's the place where people go to escape from their sorrows. And so you eat, and you drink, and you revel, and you laugh. But Solomon says, listen, the reason why it's better to go to a funeral than a party is that the one, the the former, will teach you what the latter never will. And the reality of it is this, the death is what will happen to all of us. It is a guaranteed experience. Solomon says it's the end of every man. But here's the thing, no one learns at the party house. You, You don't learn from clowns. You don't take life lessons from a comedian. You don't attend a circus in order to plan that singular path in life. That's not what you get from those places. The reality of it is that we learn our lessons from adversity. We learn our lessons, the the good lessons, the right lessons, and we learn them in the most deepest of ways when it is at the feet of adversity. And so Solomon is saying that that when we see death in others, we should want to go there because by spending time in that context and taking to heart what we see, we will be better instructed for how to live in the present. In fact, uh, so much of, of the purpose of this book is to instruct us to live life backward. What does that mean? It means to use death as the reference point, not the present moment, but to use death as the reference point and to consider how we want to die if we could choose. How we would want to be remembered. In what state we would want to be in spiritually. To think of that and then to walk it backward. And to see where I need to be today in order to get to that point whenever it comes. The psalmist in Psalm 90 verse 12 expresses the same idea when he says, So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. Or as one commentator puts it, Every funeral anticipates our own. And as a result, we need to draw lessons from that and not live in naivete or ignorance or denial. Solomon continues with another set of Proverbs in this particular section. He says in verses 3 and 4, Sorrow is better than laughter. For when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. 
Now again, there is a time for both. Back in chapter 3, verse 4, we already saw that there is a time to weep and there is a time to laugh. Solomon isn't denying that. But again, in terms of instruction and impact and influence on your life, Solomon recognizes that adversity teaches us much better lessons. In fact, he goes on to say that that sorrow is gooder than laughter, but he goes on to say that a face can be sad while a heart is happy. What does he mean by that? Well, let's look at it as, as the opposite for just a moment. A heart can be sad while a face is happy. We all know what that's like, and it's misery. When your heart is aching, you're struggling, you're failing, and you put on the face, you don the mask, the smile, and that's misery. But what Solomon says here is that the reverse is the reverse. That the face can be sad. And what he means by that is that the externals can endure and experience tremendous pain. And the face is wincing underneath that pain. And yet, because of the lessons being learned, the internal state, the soul, what he calls the heart, mission control center, the center of our personality, our souls can be at rest. He goes on then in verse 4 to repeat the same message that he said back in verse 2 that the wise is in the house of mourning, fools are in the house of pleasure. And again, so often we would find ourselves, if we had the choice, we would all gravitate to the house of pleasure, the parties, the amusements, the laughter. It just drowns out all the noise in our lives, and yet it does nothing. It does nothing to change our state. Solomon says, don't escape. Embrace. Learn the lessons. And go to the greatest adversity and start there. Go to death itself. It really is something that we must think about more often, not in some kind of morbid, obsessive way. It's not what Solomon is saying, but neither ought we to to listen to the advice of so many today who would say, never think of death, stay away from there. In our Western society, we have so tried to take away the sting and stench of death that people don't even realize what it is anymore until it's too late. I remember when I first moved to Russia been there for a few months and was invited to the first funeral. I will not forget it. It's very different than it is here. It was in June. It was hot and humid. And a certain individual who had sometimes attended the church but was not a believer had died. He had drunk himself full and tried to cross a street and was hit by a car. And in Russian culture, you don't embalm, so you have the funeral within three days. 
So we, a couple of us from the church, went to the apartment. As we walked up to the apartment in the hot, humid air, you could smell death from around the corner. Cats were crying at the window. They could smell death. It was oppressive. And there were mourners gathered outside and mourners filling the inside. And since I was with the pastor, regrettably, I had to go in with him to a very crowded, small, hot room. There in the middle was a plywood box. And the body, not embalmed, not with any kind of makeup on the face. His face had been smashed. It was there. And underneath that card or that uh, plywood coffin was a bowl catching the fluids that dripped down to the to the bowl. That is death. And when you smell it and see it, when you hear the mourners, it gives you plenty to think about, particularly about the futility of life. And that's what Solomon calls upon us to do. Men, do you understand death? Do you realize what it is? Let it sink in and let it teach you about how to live now. That's Solomon's first lesson, learn from the dead. Secondly, he says, learn from the wise. We find this in verses 5 to 12. He continues with his Proverbs. And he gives us here, in in terms of learning from the wise, he gives us here several lessons to learn from the wise in terms of pursuit. How must we learn from the wise? We must pursue four things. And the first one is this, pursue correction over carousal. Correction over carousal. Notice verses 5 and 6. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool, and this too is futility. Now, a significant experience of living in adversity and with adversity is that we stumble, we fall, we make mistakes. How do we respond? Well, the proper response in the midst of that adversity as we make mistakes is to listen to the rebuke of a wise man. Proverbs 15 verse 31 says, He who hears the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Or the psalmist in 141 verse 5 says this, Let the righteous smite me in kindness and reprove me. It is oil upon the head. Do not let my head refuse it. But the problem, of course, is that we often refuse it. And we refuse it to our own peril. Notice the contrast that Solomon gives us here in verse 5 between the two sources of sound. There is either, on the one hand, the rebuke of the wise men. The rebuke of the wise men. And then on the other, there is the song of the fools. And again, you put those two in front of you and you say, what do I want to go to? I can either hear a rebuke or a song. And that literally refers to a song, musical lyrics. 
And often, in contrast to words of correction, we gravitate to those songs which placate us, those songs which will soothe us, and they're the songs of fools. And listen, whole industries are based on this. You just go down the street to Hollywood, and all the records, the songs that have been produced are so often designed as the song of fools to keep you from the rebuke, to to placate you, to tell you, no, 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 this isn't sin, this isn't This isn't a transgression. This is just you sowing your wild oats. So just kind of cry about it a little bit and go and try again. Song after song after song is just about that. Millions, billions of dollars arise out of that. Solomon says, don't listen to the song of fools. Learn, yearn for the... the, the, the rebuke of a wise man. In fact, he likens this escape to fools, this comedic escape, you could call it. He likens it to the burning of thorns. And you know how thorns burn. You put them in the fire. They, they light very quickly. There's lots of crackling sounds as the thorn, the, the thorn bush is burned, but it burns quickly and gives absolutely no heat. It's useless for heating any kind of pot or any kind of house. And that's why Solomon says this is futility. The song of fools, the comedic escapism, trying to soothe yourself by turning on the radio, that's not what you need. Find a good wise man who will get in your face and rebuke you. That's what you need, he says. That's where the good is in life. Secondly, pursue humility over hubris. Humility over hubris. Verses 7, 8, 9, for oppression makes a a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than the beginning of a matter. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Now in this, ironically, Solomon recognizes the fallibility of wise men. That even wise men can feel oppression and be made mad. They can lose their minds at the oppression that they see. Perhaps it can even begin to corrupt their own thinking. We've seen that already, that in back in chapter 4 verse 1, where Solomon himself looks at the oppression being done under the sun, and, and he's exasperated by it. So in that experience of oppression, it can cause us to go mad. In fact, he even goes on to say that a bribe can even corrupt the heart, that a, a bribe can even, can even threaten a wise man's heart. Even the best of men are just men at best, and that should teach us humility. Not to approach this as thinking that you will have everything it takes to resist oppression and even to stand firm in the face of bribery and corruption. No. Be humble. These things are not easy. He goes on to say this, the end of a matter is better than the beginning. Endings are much better than 
beginnings. Why is that? Because it's easy to make brazen claims. It's easy to make promises. Beginning things is, is always the easier part. Ending them is a totally different story. And we all know this from our youth. How many grandiose plans did we pronounce in our lives? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. But Solomon says, you need humility. You need to recognize that the ending of things is better than the beginning. One writer puts it this way, the only measure that counts is the finish line. And in life, it often takes considerable time until the wise course is vindicated. He's talking here about endurance. In fact, notice how he goes on in in this particular portion of elevating humility over hubris by saying this, patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. The idea is length of spirit, literally translated, length of spirit is better than height of spirit. The idea is that the virtues of patience and plodding, the humble hard work that's necessary to plod, that is far more important than the height of passion and pride, that height of spirit. Moreover, he says, be careful in the midst of this because anger will often tempt you. He says, do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. As you go from the starting line to the finish line, you come across adversity, you come across obstacles, and the common response, particularly of the fool, is to lash out at the adversity, to lash out at the opposition, to to lash out at that which causes the struggle. In the midst of this, Solomon says, no, don't, don't reach toward anger. He says, and get this, anger resides in the bosom of fools. And and the bosom is the place where we cherish things, where we keep the things that are most, most precious to us. We hold them in our bosoms. And Solomon is saying that as soon as you begin to operate according to anger, you are using the tools that the fools cherish most deeply. What is anger? We could define it this way. Anger is not just some kind of emotion. It's not just some kind of of, of behavior defect or personality trait. No, anger is a whole person response. Robert Jones defines it as a whole person active response where we render a negative moral judgment against a perceived evil. In other words, every time we get angry, every time, it's, it's not just a little element of us that's flying off. Every time we get angry, it's all of us, our, our whole involvement. It's all of us rendering some kind of judgment against what we perceive to be evil done against us. And that's what makes it so very dangerous. We put ourselves in a position to judge And in fact, it's not uncommon to hear Christians say that they are angry at God, and when I hear that, I tremble. How, how could you possibly have a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against God 
Because when you do that, you are perceiving His providences to be evil. Solomon says, humble yourself. Choose it over pride. We find this in 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you, now get this, at the proper time. Not according to your timetable, but at the proper time which He alone knows. Third lesson to learn from the wise. Contentment over complaint. A very interesting proverb is found in verse 7 where Solomon says this, Do not say, Why is it that the former days were better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask about this. What's he getting at here? He's getting at the problem of nostalgia. In the face of adversity, as we deal with problems in the present, sufferings, it is easy to to go back and pine for the good old days. Oh, things today are not like they once were. How I wish I could go back. The good old days, they're gone. Why? Why can't I go back there? Why is this happening now? Who changed this all? What's the problem with that? So many. Nostalgia can certainly have a few positive moments in our lives, but men, be careful. And especially as we do see the, the culture come, a, come apart at the seams and we see all the horrendous immorality being paraded in the highest levels of government and on the street corners, it's easy to say, oh, I wish we could go back. Take us back 50 years, two generations. But that's not what we are called to do. We are not called to live in the past. The problems are these selective memories. We just remember certain things, and not the immoralities of the past. We, we idolize the past. We set it up as an idol in our minds, as the great thing to strive for. We deflect present responsibilities. We find a way to blame shift. Because things are not like they once were, I'm not as responsible. We pity ourselves. We we are unable in the present moment to seize the opportunities because we're so focused on that ideal past. And ultimately, we deny God's sovereignty. Wisdom, on the other hand, runs on contentment. It emphasizes present responsibility, seizing the day, and it looks to the future. It doesn't dwell, it doesn't obsess with the past. And listen, this is a real problem as well, and it probably is one of these respectable sins. But you can even find this with some people and their hoarding. They want to keep the past. It's the ideal It reminds them of what once was. And so they fill their houses and their garages, their attics, their cars, all full of stuff, nostalgia. Solomon says, do not do that. That's not wisdom. C.S. Lewis, in a work called The Weight of Glory, deals with nostalgia. And he says this, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located, will betray us if we trust to them. For it was not in them, it only came through them, 
And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a far country we have not yet visited. And that fits into Solomon's argument because he's getting there to that future as he gets to the end of the book when he talks about fearing God. There's a fourth lesson here in verses 11 and 12. Reason over recklessness reason over recklessness. He says this, wisdom along with an inheritance is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. For wisdom is protection, just as money is protection. But the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of its possessors. Solomon sets wisdom and an inheritance alongside each other. He calls both of them good things because they provide a practical advantage in this mortal life under the sun, particularly in times of adversity. It is good to to leave an inheritance to one's children, for example. Proverbs 13, verse 22. It is good, you are blessed, if your parents leave you an inheritance. That's a good thing. Solomon isn't against that. And alongside wisdom, those two things can really help you in times of adversity. But he's speaking of these things in a utilitarian sense. They're not ultimate, but learn from them, he says. And to possess these things, notice this, to possess these things is the very antithesis of what we call hedonism. The hedonistic individual doesn't have reason and he doesn't have inheritance. The hedonistic person just squanders. He just uses it all. And his motto is, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And so the idea is, squander it on self-indulgence. That is not the message of Ecclesiastes. Instead, Solomon is calling us to see that wisdom and resources will have advantages. In the midst of adversity, he says, they provide protection. And in fact, he says, in all of this, especially wisdom especially wisdom. The ultimate advantage of wisdom in a utilitarian sense over monetary resources is that it will preserve life in the truest sense. But that's not all there is. Solomon has not fully answered the question that he asked in 6 verse 12, who knows what is good for man? All of these things are limited and fallible And that's what leads us to the last. The last lesson is to learn from the Creator. We find this in verses 13 to 14. In verses 13 and 14, Solomon leaves the standard formula of Proverbs that he has used from verses 1 to 12, And now he gives some instruction focused on some imperatives. Let's read the text. Ecclesiastes 7, verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other 
so that man will not discover anything after him. Now let's pull this apart. The, the emphasis here is on two repeated imperatives. Consider, or, he's, or to, you could translate it as see or observe. And the first object of observation or the first object of consideration is what he calls the work of God. And that is a reference to God's sovereign providence. His hand at work. He himself is spirit, invisible to our senses, and yet our senses perceive his providence. John Calvin defined providence this way. He said, there is no erratic power or action or motion in creatures, but that they are governed by God's secret plan in such a way that nothing happens except what is knowingly and willingly decreed by him. And that certainly fits with what Solomon is talking about. And as he says, consider the work of God, he defines it as that which has been bent. He says, consider the work of God, for who is able to straighten what he has bent? Now, what he has bent is not a reference to moral bending, not a reference to corruption in that moral sense, but that which is bent refers to adversity. It refers to those circumstances of pain and and suffering, those uncomfortable circumstances that we find in our lives, the groaning that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. We've already come across this concept in Ecclesiastes 1.15 where Solomon said, what is crooked cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And here's the idea behind this first imperative to consider the work of God and that what he has bent cannot be straightened. It's this, in the midst of adversity, as you endure the troubling circumstances of your life, you cannot demand an answer. You cannot erase the mystery, the enigma. You must trust that God knows best. Job said, shall we indeed accept good from God and not adversity? James said in James 1, verses 2 and following, consider it all joy when you encounter various adversities. We must accept this. And this is the good that that we are to accept, not in knowing the answer, but in knowing the one who has the answer. That's the good. Jerry Bridges puts it this way in explaining the difficulty of trusting. He says this, quote, I acknowledge it often seems more difficult to trust God than obey Him. The moral will of God given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable. The circumstances in which we must trust God often appear irrational and inexplicable. Obeying God is worked out within well-defined boundaries of God's revealed will. Trusting God is worked out in an arena without any boundaries. We do not know the extent, the duration, the frequency of the painful, adverse circumstances in which we must frequently trust God. We are always coping with the unknown. But this is the lesson we must learn. We can't demand answers. We won't get any. 
There are some that come through deeper study of Scripture, but we need to realize that the life of faith, the life of fearing God, the life that Solomon is describing here is a life of adversity in which we in this life will not find the answers to much of it. And that is not a bad thing. In fact, the good comes from submitting to that reality, to ceasing from striving, to opening up the hands and realizing it has not been given to me to know, but blessed be the name of the Lord. There's a second imperative that's given here. It's found in verse 14. He says, in the day of prosperity, be happy, but in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man will not discover anything after him. The second object of the required observation here is this. God has made one as well as the other. He has made prosperity. And, and, and Solomon says, be happy in that. Give thanks. That prosperity is not something that you must feel guilty of if God has given it to you and your heart is enjoying God. No, the prosperity is good. Be happy, but also recognize God has also given you the other. Adversity, the the sickness, the lost job, the wayward child, all of those things are as much from God's hand as the success in your business. The bent days and the straight days equally come from God's hand. And He has not explained why. And He keeps this secret from us. Notice Solomon says, so that man will not discover anything after him. It ends there, and there is no other court to appeal to. He does not need to tell us why. It's enough for us to know that God knows what is good for man. One more quote from Jerry Bridges here. But though we should never ask a demanding why, we may and should ask God to enable us to understand what He may be teaching us through a particular experience But even here, we must be careful that we are not seeking to satisfy our own souls by finding some spiritual good in the adversity. Rather, we must trust God that He is working in the experience for our good, even when we see no beneficial results. We must learn to trust God when He doesn't tell us why, when when we don't understand what He is doing. Final four applications here as we close. Hear the preacher, men. Let these words sink deeply, impact your life. What do you need to do in response? Number one, take death seriously. When you hear it has visited someone, seize the opportunity. Examine your own life. See yourself in the coffin or on the table and say, what, do I, what, what would I like to be in that moment? And then look retroactively. Look backward. Number two, welcome correction humbly. Stop resisting. 
Learn from the adversity, and sometimes that adversity is going to be in the rebuke of another man. Number three, resist escapism firmly. I'm here to tell you that you can run from your trials. It'll never do you any good. Never. Instead, as Solomon commands us to do, we must embrace them. So don't deny adversity's existence in your life. Don't drown out your sorrows. Don't try to cling to those better times. That is not a solution. Resist escapism. And number four, then in place of that, trust God implicitly. He, he, he owes you no answers, but He is good. And He knows what is good for man. Let's pray. Father, this text of Scripture has certainly opened a lot of sore spots in our lives. It has exposed weaknesses and pains, dark areas, skepticism and doubts. It has spoken to us right where we're at with what we need. We pray, Father, that as these words do their work in our lives as your Spirit takes them, convict us and encourage us, we pray that we would find that comfort in realizing that we don't have to have the answers. It's enough that you know. Enable us in greater degree than ever through Jesus Christ to place our confidence in you, your plan, your circumstances, the adversity that you send our way, affirming along the way in all sincerity that you know what is good for me. Teach us through this text to live by that faith. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.